The True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival will be held on August 25th through the 27th, 2023 in Austin, Texas. Join other ethical true crime podcasters, victim advocates, and paranormal creators for a weekend full of panels, roundtables, and live shows. Purchase your early bird tickets now at truecrimepodcastfestival.com slash tickets. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Warning. Though no graphic descriptions are included, this case involves multiple instances of sexual assault and contains mentions of suicide and the murder of an animal. Welcome back to True Crime Cases with me, Lainey. Wichita, Kansas was a glorious snowy sight on the night of December 14, 2000. This calm continued into the early hours of December 15th, though dark and sporting sub-zero temperatures, the snow muffled all sound, and Christmas decorations twinkled warmly through the gloom. It was these lights, in fact, that gave a faint glimmer of hope to a 25-year-old woman. The decorations shone as a light to guide her as she stumbled for nearly a mile across snowy grounds and over a barbed wire fence, freezing and severely injured, to seek help from anywhere and anyone who would offer it. Thankfully, the house she was headed for was such a place, and a couple soon opened the door to her frantic knocking. They were greeted with a terrifying sight when they did, as a young woman stood in front of them, completely naked and covered in blood that seemed to be coming from a devastating head wound. It was very nearly a fatal wound, as at that moment, her skull was shattered from taking a gunshot to the head. She was sobbing when she said to the couple who opened the door to her, I need to tell you my story before I die, and told them that she and her friends had been shot. The couple quickly dialed 911, and as the call connected, the young woman took the phone from the homeowner to speak with the police. They had to know the full story, and she had to tell it herself if it was the last thing she did. But this woman would survive and become one of two key witnesses who identified and took down the men who had attacked her, her friends, and others before her. This case would come to be known locally as the Wichita Horror, and as news of it spread more widely, it became known as the Wichita Massacre. Okay, on to the show. Reginald and Jonathan Carr were born in Cleveland, Ohio in 1977 and 1980, respectively. The second and fourth children to Janice Harding and Reginald Carr Sr. The couple had been young when they got together, having their first child when Janice was only 16 and Reginald was only a year older than her. Despite this, they waited to marry until Janice was 18, as Janice's mother was unpredictable and apparently prone to fits of rage when she disapproved of something. At first, they did all they could to provide their children with stable and positive lives. They lived in a good neighborhood where it would be safe to play outdoors. They went to church, Janice stayed home to look after the kids, and Reginald Sr. worked as a chemist. But then they were struck with tragedy. Their youngest daughter, Regina, was born in early 1974. When she was only two years old, she contracted leukemia, dying just a year later after a devastating battle to keep her alive. 
This was when the young family began to unravel. Janice blamed her husband for the death of their daughter, though it's unclear why, and the couple became violent with each other. There were alleged affairs on both sides of the marriage. They became involved heavily with alcohol and drugs. On one occasion, after being hit by her husband, Janice told Reginald Sr., you're not going to hit me again, as she raised a baseball bat to threaten him. Janice took her children and moved them into her mother's house when their father was at work, and they never went back, eventually divorcing in September of 1986. At this point, Reginald Sr. remarried and moved across the country to California with his new family, and his children had almost no contact with him after he left. When this happened, Jonathan was six and Reginald was nine. Despite the best efforts of Janice and Reginald Sr. early on, the young lives of the Carr children could hardly be described as childhoods. They had no sense of stability. Their mother moved them around Cleveland so often that Reginald had attended eight schools throughout eight grades. They were never anywhere long enough to build up trust or relationships with anyone who could offer a positive impact on their lives. Though exact details are hard to come by regarding their childhoods, that might be for the best, as what we do know is that they and their siblings were subject to parental neglect, physical and verbal abuse, and lived with a mother who simply did not seem to care about how they were treated. This allegedly even went as far as their mother forcing them to strip naked and be forcefully held down by their siblings so that she could whip them as a form of punishment. Their grandmother was still prone to the outbursts with their grandchildren, as she had been with her daughter, so she was not a safe adult for them to go to either. Defense attorney Ron Evans would later say of the cars, This was a very dysfunctional family, adding that they fought, they drank, they drugged in front of the kids. Their mother would regularly use marijuana and cocaine among other drugs, making no effort to shield her children from it as she did so. Reginald and Jonathan's older sister would also be subject to sexual abuse from their father and the boyfriends her mother would bring home after she left their father. None of these men were interested in being fathers or good role models, and one boyfriend who Janice would eventually marry once held a gun to her head. It would appear the surviving car daughter wasn't alone in suffering sexual abuse, as in court, she would testify that her brothers were also subject to it though these claims have never been verified. The only respite the Carr siblings got was when they went to stay with their Aunt Phyllis in Texas. When they were with their aunt, they got to swim, go fishing, regularly go to church, and live the sort of life that children should get to live. Phyllis would later report that she had absolutely no inclination that any children were being neglected, saying they never told her about any abuse and always looked healthy wearing decent, clean clothing. Reginald was devastated by his parents' divorce and the subsequent abandonment of their father. He had a strong, positive attachment to the man despite what he had allegedly experienced around him and because of him. The loss of that relationship has been cited as one of the reasons that Reginald's mental well-being may have been stunted. This left him with strong anger and resentment that never truly went away. Sadly, it is clear in hindsight that what seemed to be the norm for the Carr siblings was anything but normal. And when it came to Reginald, 
the apple didn't fall too far from the tree regarding sexual deviancy and substance abuse. At six, according to a forensic psychologist, Reginald started inappropriately touching young girls that his mother would babysit at their home. Reginald would also claim that the very next year, at only seven years old, he would frequently be involved sexually with a female cousin of his. He was only 11 when he became involved with drugs, holding products for local dealers for a couple of years before selling them himself by the age of 13, even apparently selling these drugs to his own mother. It was roughly around this time that he became a gang member, but it isn't clear whether this is related to drug dealing or another facet of Reginald's troubled life. Reginald also began drinking at 11 years old, enabled by his uncles, which led him to abusing alcohol by the time he was 16. Throughout his childhood and teenage years, he was extremely volatile and violent. He and Jonathan would shoot BB guns at animals and turn them on each other when they couldn't find any. He was constantly getting into physical fights at school with students and teachers and got suspended for the sexual harassment of a teacher when he was barely a teenager. 16 was also the age that Janice kicked Reginald out of the house, and Reginald got his girlfriend at the time, Rochelle Cosman, pregnant. He became a father to a baby boy just after his 17th birthday. This joyous occasion followed a series of crimes, aggravated assault and theft at Dodge City Community College's library. This led to him being given probation and his constant drug dealing and drug use. This usage and subsequent possession of methamphetamines violated the terms of his probation, and as a result, he was sent to prison at the Norton Correctional Facility on October 23, 1996. Two months later, his second son was born to his future wife, Mandy. Jonathan was considered to be the more sensitive of the Carr brothers. He would cry and wail as a baby, whereas nobody in their family could ever remember seeing Reginald shed a tear. Jonathan was subject to the same abuses as Reginald, but it seems like they affected him differently than his older brother. While Reginald lashed out, Jonathan retreated into himself. And yet, being the quiet sibling still didn't keep him out of trouble. When he was seven years old, Jonathan attended Harry Rice Elementary School in Cleveland, when he was one of many young students accused of raping a little girl during a fire drill. Although these allegations turned out to be false, fabricated, and recanted by a little girl, who, alongside her sister, had been molested by a relative, the damage had already been done. The community knew what Jonathan had been accused of, and the children at his school taunted him over it relentlessly. As a result of this, and perhaps the conditions he had been surviving throughout childhood, Jonathan attempted to end his life by hanging himself. Perhaps to allow her son some time to recover, away from the community that had pushed him to attempt suicide, Janice sent Jonathan to live with her sister in Brownsville, Texas. Jonathan stayed with Phyllis for a year, after which he frequently visited her with his brother, as we mentioned earlier. It was because of Phyllis eventually moving to Dodge City, Kansas, that the Carr family would also end up there. Janice followed her sister once she realized its community seemed family-friendly, and perhaps better as a place to raise her children. For the rest of his childhood, while Reginald ran riot, Jonathan remained the more reserved of the two. 
However, he wasn't totally innocent. He stole a vehicle with a friend with the intent of joyriding. On another occasion, he threatened to stab a probation officer in the neck using a pencil. This was perhaps to be expected, as his volatile yet protective older brother was the only father figure he had ever known. So much did Jonathan care for his brother that he would attempt again to take his own life when Reginald was sent to prison in 1996. 16 years old and grieving the recent loss of his dog and an ended relationship, all the while his brother was sent to jail, Jonathan would drink antifreeze to try and end his life. But Jonathan survived and did his best to try and turn his life around despite everything he had gone through. He did carpentry work for an elderly couple who were deeply impressed by his attitude and work ethic. Then, at 20, he moved back to his hometown of Cleveland, met a girlfriend, and found a job with her father at a company called Federal Steel. Reportedly, Jonathan was a great worker when he worked the same shift as his girlfriend's father. But when his shift changed, he consistently showed up late and was eventually fired. At that point, in early 2000, Jonathan only wanted to return to Dodge City, where Reginald was soon to be released. A release later revealed to be an error on the part of two parole officers making mathematical mistakes. Their mother warned Reginald to stay away from his brother, saying that Jonathan doesn't need to be getting in trouble, as she knew that her eldest son was a bad influence on her youngest. Sadly, neither brother would listen to this advice, and it would only be nine months later that they would go on a rampage that would become infamous in Kansas and across the country. I'm Jackie Moranti, and I produce a podcast called Cause of Death, 100 Seconds to Midnight. Have you ever read or watched any post-apocalyptic fiction? Were you one of the first people to see The Road or I Am Legend when they came out? Do you wonder if those things could really happen? Could the world as we know it be toppled by a disease, a global crisis, or a natural disaster? I assure you that it could. My show talks about the precursors to apocalyptic events. I like to call it pre-apocalyptic nonfiction. I talk about history and how we never learned from it. The present and how we tend to ignore every warning sign. And the future and what it will mean if we don't take care of our resources. The hands of the doomsday clock have been set at 100 seconds to midnight for three years now. Can we make the hands turn back? Cause of Death, 100 Seconds to Midnight, can be found wherever you listen to podcasts. The days are growing longer and spring has very nearly sprung. Warmer weather is beckoning at long last and with it shorts and no sleeves, flip-flops and sandals and open-toed shoes. And if those last three things make you self-conscious, Babyfoot is here to help. Babyfoot started in Japan in 1997 and are now worldwide. But you may be wondering, okay, what does Babyfoot offer? They provide a selection of foot care products that give you a gentle way to exfoliate and care for your feet, removing any dead skin while revealing a newer layer of baby soft skin underneath. Their range of foot-specific skincare has seen great success in all manner of avenues, 
Organic markets, spas, salons, sports medicine, dermatologists, plastic surgeons, just to name a few. And the Babyfoot Peel products alone have sold over 25 million peels worldwide. And for listeners of our show, they also offer 20% off your order. Go to www.babyfoot.com and use our promo code TRUECRIME20, all caps, no spaces, to redeem this offer and get your own feet feeling refreshed this winter season. That's TRUECRIME20 for 20% off at www.babyfoot.com. Before we continue with this case, we want to make sure it's clear that children from troubled family lives are not to be demonized or assumed to be criminals. Though we have sympathy for the Carr siblings and wish that they never had to go through or experience the childhood that they did, and though these conditions may have contributed to their later actions in some way, it does not in any way excuse or justify the acts Jonathan and Reginald Carr went on to commit together. On December 7th, 2000, 25-year-old Andrew Schreiber headed to a local convenience store at around 11 p.m. to buy some school tobacco. Schreiber, who had once been a Wichita State University baseball player, was approached by two men when he left the store, and he had no idea they were approaching him with the intent of abducting him in his own vehicle. Forcing Schreiber into his car at gunpoint, They held him hostage and made him drive to an ATM and withdraw as much money as possible. They reportedly repeated this with other ATMs, making Schreiber max out the amount he could withdraw from his bank account in one day. Then they forced him back into the car and had him drive out into the middle of nowhere on a dirt road near an airport. Schreiber feared for his life as the two climbed out of the car and shots were fired but thankfully the men only shot out the tires of his car before fleeing the scene in another vehicle. It seems that all they took from him was the $800 they had made him withdraw from the ATMs, leaving Schreiber stranded but alive. The same could not be said for the other victims of these two men, who were, of course, Reginald and Jonathan Carr. Though at this point, all that Schreiber could tell the police was a description of his attackers two black males, which wasn't much to go on. Four days later, on December 11th, librarian Anne Walenta noticed something strange as she drove home at 5.30 p.m. The 55-year-old woman thought that a light-colored sedan was following her, but shrugged it off as she was on a tight schedule. She was a cellist and had an orchestra practice with the Wichita Symphony Orchestra to attend. By the time practice ended at 9.30 p.m., Anne probably thought it had just been a coincidence until she noticed the same car had reappeared on her drive home and was following her once more. The drive took 15 minutes, and when Anne arrived at her destination and pulled into her driveway, someone got out of the sedan and approached her, holding a gun. Anne immediately tried to pull away and escape in her car, but she was shot by the man from the sedan, who quickly returned to the vehicle and fled. Anne Walenta survived long enough to inform the police how she had been attacked and what the suspects looked like. She was then taken to the hospital for treatment in critical condition. Due to the similarities between the carjacking Schreiber experienced and the attack on Anne, 
it was clear to police that the same people had been responsible for both crimes. However, they still did not know who exactly that was or how to locate them. Crime scene investigator Kevin Brazzer told the show Killer Siblings that they knew if they didn't find the men soon, quote, it's just going to keep going and getting worse and worse and worse. Their fears were confirmed only three days later when the Carr brothers' crimes escalated for a final time, with horrifying results on the snowy night of December 14th. Brad Haka, Aaron Sander, and Jason Beffert were friends who shared an apartment in Wichita, Kansas. The men were waiting for two female friends to arrive for a relaxing night of hanging out, Heather Muller and another woman we will refer to as H.G., As H.G. is a survivor of sexual assault, many news outlets have censored her name to allow her anonymity and out of respect for what she went through. So, we will be doing the same, for the exact same reasons. Heather and H.G. arrived around 8 p.m., and the five friends enjoyed each other's company and peace for a few hours. They were all professional and respectable young people, aged 25 to 29, Jason Beffert and H.G. were both teachers, Jason a high school science teacher and football coach, while H.G. taught at the elementary level. The two were in a relationship, and unbeknownst to H.G., Jason was planning to propose to her and had purchased a ring to do so. Brad was a director of finance with Koch Financial Services, and Aaron had worked alongside him before leaving with the intent of becoming a priest. Heather Muller, too, had left her job as a preschool teacher to become a nun. But at 11 p.m., their dreams of the future were irrevocably changed when Jonathan and Reginald Carr forced their way into the home. They were wielding guns and golf clubs and, at first, seemed to intend to not do anything more than rob the apartment's inhabitants, making all five of their victims crowd into one room so they were easier to control, the two searched the home for any valuables they could find, one of which would be the engagement ring Jason had bought for H.G. Something that differs between sources is how the five friends were subdued. While some say they were kept in the same room, others report that the Carr brothers forced them to strip naked at gunpoint and into a closet together. But what we know is what happened next, which we will not go into gratuitous detail over. But please note that what I'm about to say is distressing and involves sexual assault. Once the brothers finished finding things worth stealing, they turned their attention back to the people they held hostage. The Carr brothers then violently sexually assaulted both women before forcing all five of their victims to engage in sexual acts with each other. They also beat the men with the baseball bats they had threatened them with. This prolonged assault lasted for over three hours. At intervals within this time, the Carr brothers would individually take each victim to nearby ATMs, as they had done with Schreiber a week earlier, having them withdraw as much money as their bank cards allowed. A total of $1,600 was stolen from them. Then at 2 a.m., the Cars removed their hostages from the apartment together, still naked. They forced the three men into the trunk of Aaron Sanders' car, and one brother took Heather Muller in the passenger seat of the car, while the other brother took H.G. with him in Jason Beffert's Dodge pickup. They were driven to a nearby soccer field, frozen over and snowy with the cold, and forced all five victims to kneel on the ground. 
Reginald and Jonathan Carr shot all five of them in the back of the head and returned to the truck they had stolen. As they fled from the scene, leaving their victims for dead, one of the brothers ran over their bodies with his car. When the Carr brothers left, they returned to the ransacked apartment whose inhabitants they had just murdered and stole a large television, bedding, and china, among other items. As a final act of cruelty, they also killed H.G.'s dog. Jason Beffert was 26 years old when he was murdered, Brad Haka, 27, Aaron Sander, 29, and Heather Muller, 25. H.G. was also 25, but this ordeal did not end her life. She survived both being shot in the head and getting run over by a truck. Somehow, the plastic hair barrette she had been wearing had protected her from the gunshot just enough that it was redirected from her brain. And although she was severely injured, the first thing she tried to do was help her boyfriend. But she soon realized that there was nothing she could do. Then she spotted the Christmas lights in the distance and began to stumble toward what she could only hope would bring her help and safety. As you'll remember from the start of this episode, her hope was justified and the couple who lived at the home took her in and helped as she contacted the police. Police wasted no time in locating the perpetrators, amassing a large force to search for them. The perpetrators had taken Jason's car, and when police gave this information to news channels, a man said the car was parked at his apartment building. On further inquiry, the police found another resident who had helped a man carry a large TV to his room earlier that day. That was how they found and arrested Reginald, and through him, they tracked down Jonathan, who had gone to stay with his girlfriend. Jonathan tried to evade capture, but he was quickly apprehended. When they were arrested, police found damning evidence connecting them to the previous night's events amongst their possessions. Reginald Carr had Heather Muller's watch, Jason Beffert's credit card, and nearly $1,000 worth of cash in his pockets. Jonathan Carr had the engagement ring Jason Beffert had bought to propose to H.G. in his leather jacket. H.G. was able to identify the brothers as the murderers of her closest friends, and Anne Malenta, who was still in the hospital, was also able to positively identify Reginald as one of her attackers. Sadly, Anne died only a few days later from the injuries the Carr brothers had inflicted on her. The librarian and musician had been popular and much loved by all who came into contact with her and would be missed deeply by friends and family alike. Nearly two years later, at Wichita's Sedgwick County Courthouse in late 2002, Jonathan and Reginald Carr would be tried together for their crimes, aged 22 and 24 respectively. The brothers' defense attorneys had attempted to get the trial relocated, because they believed the local media coverage of the car's actions meant that there would be no chance of getting an impartial jury, but this request was denied. They had also requested that the brothers be tried independently rather than jointly, but this too was denied. CNN reported that what followed was, quote, the longest jury selection in county history, starting on September 9th. The trial itself eventually began on October 7th, ending on November 4th. H.G. and Andrew Schreiber took to the witness stand to describe what they had endured at the hands of the Carr brothers. Three weeks later, the jury found Jonathan and Reginald Carr guilty of 93 
of the 113 counts they had been charged with, which, besides four counts of capital murder, included rape, aggravated kidnapping, and aggravated robbery. Before sentencing commenced, District Attorney Nola Folston recommended to the jury that the suitable penalty for such actions was death. She told them that she considered the crimes premeditated and that the evidence showed they committed the crimes for no other reason than because they chose to. Folston believed that the brothers did what they did at the night's end because they wanted to leave no person behind to say what heinous, cruel things happened to them before they were executed. One of Reginald's attorneys, Jay Greenow, pleaded for the jury to extend mercy to Reginald Carr that he did not extend to those four young individuals. He argued that his client had brain damage and his troubled childhood stunted his development and intended to bring experts and family members to testify to this. This testimony supplied much of what we had to offer in telling you about Jonathan and Reginald's childhood earlier in this episode. Jonathan's attorney, Ron Evans, reminded the jury that before the Wichita horror, Jonathan had no history of serious criminal activity like that of his older brother. Evans also referenced their dysfunctional upbringing as a cause of their behavior and would bring witnesses to testify to Jonathan's childhood suicide attempts to garner a more lenient sentence than death. Janice Harding, the car's mother, was also present in the court as often as her job allowed her to be. She begged that the jurors spare her son's lives, claiming they had good in them. Janice also told her sons, I don't know what went wrong, but I love you both and I am sorry for everything that happened. If I did anything wrong, I am sorry. However, the decision already seemed to be made for the jury. The following deliberations took seven hours. So, on Thursday, November 14th of 2002, Jonathan and Reginald Carr received four death sentences by lethal injection each, one for each of H.G.'s friends they had murdered. According to state law, the Carr brothers' death sentence was automatically appealed to the Kansas Supreme Court. Their other non-capital counts would receive sentences from Judge Paul Clark the next day, but this was largely overshadowed by the death sentence that had already been delivered. November 14th was also Reginald's birthday, and according to the Wichita Eagle, he had broken his arm while fighting another inmate before he appeared in court that day. When Reginald was later bodily removed from the courtroom by sheriff's deputies, Jason Befford's brother, Mark, taunted the man by calling, Happy Birthday, out from the gallery. He responded by yelling back, cursing and slurring at everyone in the gallery, including his own family. Jonathan, on the other hand, remained quiet. When his sister and mother told him, Jonathan, I love you, from the courthouse hallway, as the younger brother was removed, he responded with, I love you too. His attorney, Ron Evans, would report that Jonathan was one of the most gracious clients he had ever had and that he felt bad for the young man, despite his actions. No motive for their crime spree has ever been verified, though greed and theft were suggested due to the ATM visits and items they stole from their victims. This is not wholly convincing, however, as both brothers were intelligent and held legitimate jobs that, given time, would have gained them what they wanted if that were the case. As mentioned, the death sentence was immediately appealed. It was argued that there had been procedural issues in the case, 
with the location of the trial leading to bias, the joint sentencing being inappropriate, and not enough emphasis being put on the circumstances of the brothers' childhood, leading to what they later became. What followed was decades' worth of deliberation over the Carr's case and the constitutionality of the death penalty in Kansas. The last execution that had been carried out in Kansas was by hanging in 1965. Although capital punishment was reinstated in 1994, there had yet to be any further death sentences carried out or even approved by Kansas Supreme Court. In 2014, the Kansas Supreme Court overturned the death sentences and struck three of the four capital murder convictions each brother had received. They did so, citing procedural issues with the trial that they claimed violated the Carr brothers' Eighth Amendment rights. This largely referred to the penalty phase not being severed and instead being carried out jointly. The court believed it led to evidence being used to decide both fates when it was only relevant to one of the defendants. For example, it could be that Reginald's long history of violence and sexual assault should not have been considered when deciding the penalty for Jonathan. Another element of this appeal was that the jury had not been instructed that mitigating evidence did not have to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt, which may have otherwise influenced their choice of the death penalty. The case was then sent back to the district court for new sentencing to be carried out. However, this would get appealed even further, and in 2016, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled against it in an 8-to-1 vote. The court concluded that the Constitution does not, quote, require that the sentencing phase of a joint trial is severed, and that, in this case, there is no evidence that the jury was impermissibly prejudiced by the presentation of evidence during a joint sentencing phase for both defendants. In plainer layman's terms, the Supreme Court did not deem any of the issues in the appeals to have made the trial or sentencing proceedings fundamentally unfair, and the brothers were again put on death row. The attorneys for the Carr brothers did not give up, and in 2021, the case was again sent to the Kansas Supreme Court for further deliberation. This time, the Kansas Supreme Court affirmed the death penalty as of January 21, 2022. To this day, Reginald and Jonathan remain imprisoned in the Kansas Correctional Facility. However, it is no clearer now than 20 years ago whether their executions will ever be carried out or even scheduled. We want to mention another crime that occurred eight days before the Carr brothers murdered the four friends in the snow, referred to as the Forgotten Four. The victims of this crime were all but forgotten as the Carr brothers rocketed into the headlines nationwide. Even though, for those eight days, they had been the worst killing Wichita had ever seen in over 25 years. Jermaine Levy and Quincy Williams were visiting Quincy's cousin, Dessa Ford. They were playing video games on the couch in Dessa's home when 19-year-old Cornelius Oliver shot them in the head. Dessa attempted to flee, but Oliver killed her before she could even reach the front door. Finally, he went to the bedroom of his girlfriend, Dessa's 18-year-old roommate, Rashonda Wheaton, and fatally shot her, even as she repeatedly told him she loved him. The bodies of the four black teenagers were found by relatives on December 7, 2000. Many onlookers have since questioned why their deaths were immediately pushed aside 
by the media in favor of reporting on the deaths of four young white people. Candace Reed, a cousin to Dessa and Quincy, tried for years to keep her cousin's memories alive as she attempted to raise money for headstones for her lost family members. She recalled to the Wichita Eagle, I talked to one member of city council who had lived in Wichita for 33 years and didn't know what I was talking about. But the minute I mentioned the Carr brothers, he knew about that. Candace asked how either case could be any worse than the other if the results were the same, calling into question why these four teenagers were not afforded the same compassion and horror as the Carr brothers' victims. Cornelius Oliver was given a life sentence for his crimes, with no chance of parole until 2140. I would like to end this episode by paying respects to the nine lives lost in eight awful days in December 2000. Jermaine Levy, Quincy Williams, Dessa Ford, Rashonda Wheaton, Brad Haka, Aaron Sander, Jason Beffert, Heather Muller, and Anne Walenta. As Ken Landwer, chief of Wichita homicide detectives, told the Wichita Eagle following the car's crimes, I hope I never have to go through a December like that ever again. Okay, listeners, thank you for joining me on this episode as we file away another true crime case. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please follow and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It's a big help. Follow us on our social media. We're on Twitter at truecrime underscore cases, Facebook at facebook.com slash truecrimecaseswlaney, and Instagram at truecrimecaseswithlaney. Our website is truecrimecasespodcast.com, and we'd love to hear your episode suggestions. Send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com if you'd like to reach out. This episode was researched, written, and edited by Jesse Hawk, with content editing by Lainey Hobbs. Audio engineering produced by the best in the business, Neeks at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkofDreams.com.